Well, good morning. Or, as they say in my native land of Texas, howdy. <laughs> Let's uh, begin by going to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we are thankful for this day, especially Beth and I, that we can come and we can share a time of fellowship and worship with our brothers and sisters here in Mobile, Alabama, that are a part of this faith family. And Father, we're especially grateful that what you are doing in connecting these faith families together is something that you're doing not just between us, but it's between all the churches that rightfully follow you. And that is that we would gather weekly to know who you are rightly and who we are before you and what you've called us to. Father, not so that we can have an enduring city here on earth, but that we prepare for the lasting city that is to come and the place that you have prepared for us. So as we dive into your word this morning, we pray that you would receive all glory and honor. We pray that you would still our hearts and minds, that you would quiet all of the distractions around us, and that your word would transform us this morning. Because we want to be ambassadors that are rightly reflecting Jesus to the world around us as we prepare for this city that is to come. And it's in his name, Jesus Christ, that we pray, amen. Well, I am so excited to be here with you this morning. I have been tasked with talking about what's going on in Logan, Utah, but then also sharing God's word with you. And so I'm gonna try to do something that I've never really done before and that is, I'm going to try to weave our specific story into this text. And so we're going to look at God's word, but you're also going to see a devotional element as it applies directly to what's going on in the life of uh, the Tarver family in Logan, Utah. But before, let's begin with some introductions. So I'm Seth. I'm married to Beth down here. Not with us this morning is our associate pastor of evangelism, Grayson Tarver. He's five years old. He will literally talk to anybody that walks by. We moved into an apartment complex and it had a little patio area. And it was real nice because across the way, just vacant land where a person would put up their horses. And so people would come by our apartment regularly to see all these horses and Grayson would be standing up somehow constructed over chairs, ready to greet everybody. And as they walked by, he would say, hey, bring your dog over here or hey, come back over here. And at times I would be sitting in going, oh man, here he goes again, here he is. What's he gonna say? And at times I'd be so proud of my little associate uh, pastor of evangelism. Jesus loves you. And so I get excited. I'm, unfortunately, he couldn't be here with us. I wish he could have. I want to talk a little bit about how Beth and I connected because it weaves into our story a bit. Beth and I got married later in life. We were older. 
And at the time, before we got married, before we even met, I had no prospects. Can you imagine that? I mean, you're seeing me in full view this morning, so maybe that's not hard to imagine. No prospects whatsoever. A family friend called me up, or actually spoke to me and said, hey, there's this girl I've wanted to introduce you to. Um, I think she'd be good for you. And she said, but there's a catch. And I thought, just like any single guy that's ever been set up, oh man, one leg is shorter than the other. She must walk in circles all day. Like, what's going on? And folks, it was worse than I could have imagined. She said the catch is she lives in California. And I don't know about you, but Texas plus California is not supposed to equal anything good. That might be the abomination of desecration. But somehow God has made it work. Now, I'll tell you that quick story because at the heart of it, and one of the reasons why it had been so long before either of us had this prospect of marriage, in my opinion, what, looking back on what God has done in my life, I had built an altar and I was worshiping at this altar of marriage and family. And I found myself, even in seminary, you know, I go for an MDiv and the girls are supposed to be going for the MRS degree, right? So I'm, I'm supposed to have every opportunity in the world. But the whole time I look back at that time in seminary, I was worshiping at a different altar. And the text that you've been looking at over the last couple of weeks, the Israelite people got tired of waiting and so instead, they erected a God for themselves, and instead of being patient and waiting on the Lord, they said, we need something right in front of us. We need it now. We need to worship it now. And that was the story of my life up until age 30. I was chasing a different God. I was chasing a different altar. And then, in October of 2014, I had a moment where the Lord got a hold of me. I had some wise counsel in my life speak into my life and say, Seth, you've got these idols. I don't think you know about it, you know. Let's walk you through what's going on and why that's happening. And in October of 2014, I had a come to Jesus moment where I realized that's right. I've put all of these promises in the mouth of God that he never spoke, that I deserve marriage. I'm supposed to be married. This is right and you promised me this, God. But that promise is nowhere to be found in Scripture. And so when I was made aware of this, it cut me deep to the bone. And I fell before the Lord one day there in October of 2014. And I committed my life back to the, back to the Lord. And I said, you're right. Even if I'm single for the rest of my life, you are worthy of my worship. You deserve all of my praise. And so I will rightly follow you, no matter what that costs. At the same time in California, literally October of 2014, my wife was literally going through the same kind of thing. No marriage prospects, although marriage and family was desired, it just wasn't happening. And so as she was preparing to live a life on mission, to move to Ethiopia, 
God started a work in her heart and made her aware that she had also erected this idol of marriage and family. So here we are in October of 2014. We both have these moments before the Lord, and then we connect for the first time in January of 2015. And I'll never forget, 15 minutes into that phone call, the Lord said, this is the one you've been praying for. You just had to wait for my timing. Flash forward, we get married almost to the day in October of 2015. Now, the reason why I tell you this story is because that idol that I had built up and erected in my life and the same idol that my wife was uh, worshiping as well, that battle with that sin and idolatry basically helped inform and equip my wife and I to where now we serve in a land where the banner phrase is, families are forever. Chase marriage, get married as young and as early as possible and have as many kids. And this is where God's called us to. Part of what we're gonna see today in the sermon is that God has prepared a place for you. You have a mission field that God has called you to and he's preparing and equipping you even now if you're walking through a valley to serve him rightly in that calling. So here my family has been prepared for this mission field that God's called us to and he's equipped us along the way to serve well. Now, how did we get connected here with Mars Hill? When we made the decision to go church plant in Logan, Utah and follow God in that calling, we spent some time in Houston, Texas, and it was preparing for church planting. And in the time that we were there going through all of the training with NAM and all of the preparation for getting to know Logan, Utah, there was a pastor in the area who was going through a rough time. And the situation that we had recently come out of as we were going to plant was very similar to what he was going through. We had been at a church, I was pastoring in Dallas, Texas, and it was a revitalized work. We were trying to breathe life into a dying church. And the church started out with eight core people but just through simple door-to-door -door evangelism, going on, knocking on doors, getting to know the neighbors that surrounded the church, we ballooned to where we had at our highest point 60 plus people coming to the Sunday service. But those numbers started declining. And I found out later that there was a core contingent within the church body that were telling people, you can't come here it actually would be better for you to go to this church down the street because they speak your language and it would be better for you to go there. And this pastor that I befriended in Houston was walking through that same journey, trying to fight this just uphill battle, the hearts and the minds of the congregants of those that come to his church every Sunday. And I saw what the battle had done to him. And we just kind of as brothers, picked each other up 
and encourage one another, spurred one another along. I had no idea that that would lead to where we are today and where I'm standing today. That friendship blossomed and it led to the point of the Nashville Southern Baptist Convention. Is that right? By the way, for all you uh, Southern Baptist folks, right? Like we say nothing good comes out of the convention, right? Something great did come out of the convention in Nashville that year. Kyle connected with Brad, this friend of mine that uh, we were walking through life together. And Kyle was told, there's this guy up in Utah who's planting a church. And, you know, Kyle kind of got excited, but then he was like, eh, there's a lot of planters in, in Utah. But then Brad said, wait a second, he's in Logan, Utah. And it was at that moment that Kyle got real excited because in all of the journeys out to Utah that he has had and that Mars Hill College students have been on, Logan, Utah has been a, heart, a place on the heart of this church body for some time. We've been praying about it. What would happen? Should we plant a church? What should we do? And then Kyle and I connected over the phone. Brad shared my information. And what followed was an understanding of a call and a vision and a mission for ministry in Logan, Utah that aligned perfectly with the heart, mission, and vision with a church here in Mobile, Alabama. So this partnership began to take place. Now let me tell you a little bit about Logan, Utah. In 2017, when we started researching where God was sending us, we quickly discovered that the Logan metro area was the second most unreached, unengaged area. And what I mean by that, when I say unreached, unengaged areas, less than 1% of the population at the time identified as Bible-believing Christians. The entire metro area at the time was reported to have about 132,000 people and less than 1% of that population identified to be a Bible-believing Christian. We are literally in a mission field that is unreached and unengaged at every level of every demographic you could throw out there. It's the second most unreached, unengaged area in all of the U United States of America. I would argue this morning, it is the last pre-Christian frontier in our land. Think about that. We know very well that Christianity was birthed in the United States uh, on the northeast portion of our land and spread westward. And in the northeast, we can see and say it seems to be post-Christian, but out in Utah, we literally have a pre-Christian frontier. That's where this faith family in Mobile, Alabama is praying about cultivating for the kingdom. And so I wanna tell you on behalf of someone who's already in there, living there, and has been there for a number of years now, it is essential 
for what we're doing for you to come alongside us in prayer. We don't take that lightly. We crave it, we need it, it is essential. And I've noticed here that the church body here at Mars Hill is making a more concerted effort into a prayer life, corporately and individually. And I'm telling you, your prayers are needed, not just for what's going on here in Mobile, but also what's happening in Logan, Utah. So if you will, please continue to remember us in prayer. Here's the vision and mission for Logan, Utah. We are going not to build a building, not to put people in seats so that we can say, look at what our seating capacity has grown to. But to use a quote from J.D. Greer, we don't want to be judged on our seating capacity. We want to be judged by our sending capacity. I believe that if you're going to win Utah, you have to go after those that are indigenous to the land of Utah. You have to go to the LDS faithful. And we have to walk beside them in love and in gospel ministry and show them who Jesus is. We want to get a healthy family, faith family established. And the long vision is that God would raise up a man from that community it's from that area that has deep historic roots in that community and can lead that church. And then we want to multiply that effort as much as we can in Utah and wherever else God calls us to. That's the work that God has called us to. That is the city that God has prepared my wife and I for. Now let's look at the text and see what God is doing with the Israelites and how he's preparing them now to go to the land in which he has prepared for them. I don't typically title my sermons because we typically are just walking through verse by verse of the Bible but I thought it interesting and well worth it this morning to title this message, Get to the Mission Field That's Been Prepared for You. Get to the Mission Field That's Been Prepared for You. As we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 33, I got to tell you real quickly, Exodus 33 is one of my favorite passages. It's probably my favorite chapter in the entire book of uh, Exodus here. And so it's, it's just a beautiful passage. There's a number of things that are happening. We're going to see what happens in verses 1 through 6, but it's also just a, a beautiful picture of discipleship because you see this intimate moment where Moses is bringing Joshua to the tent of meeting. There's all these incredible things that are happening. And so I just, I got tickled when Kyle said, hey, uh, here's the verse that we're working on when you'll be down if you want to preach out of that. And I was like, oh man, it's like the Lord prepared this to happen or something. This is perfect. 
So I'm really excited to look at Exodus uh, 33 with you. And we're going to look at uh, going to the mission field that God's prepared for you. There's three observations about God in terms of getting to the mission field. Now, you know the context. You've been working through the book of Exodus. But God is literally about to take them moving from this idea of being out in the wilderness and marching along, and now he's literally trying to get them to the promised land. There's a lot of preparation work that's been happening. You know, Moses has been um, communing with the Lord. He's been receiving uh, the Ten Commandments. And now here the people are officially going to be commissioned. It's, it's like, here it is. This is the moment. This is when all things should be right. Moses comes down out of the mountain and he has what the Israelite people need to do to rally around what God's call over them is. And you would think, yes, let's go. But tragedy strikes. And the people get tired of waiting on God. In fact, they even say, we don't even know what's happened to Moses. For all we know, he got up there and got struck by lightning and like he's done. So let's refocus and let's try to put God into our terms, something we can understand, how we want to perceive God. Let's create God into this image and let's use that then to go before us. So there's three observations as we get to this portion of Exodus chapter 33, one through six. Three observations you need to see about God. The first is this, God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. There in Exodus, he says here in verse one, he tells them now, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought up from the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God's going to keep his promises. This dates back to Genesis chapter 12 when he gives the sevenfold blessing or promise to Abraham that out of Abram, uh, he would create a city, a, pe or a people for him. That the entire world eventually would be blessed through them. This isn't something that God's forgot about. He hasn't forgot about this covenant, this oath that has been sworn. He's going to remember it. And here, even in spite of the sin and the fallenness of the people of Israel... He's going to remember that promise, and in fact, he does here. So in spite of breaking this covenant, God was ready to rain down wrath. We saw that in Exodus 32, verses 7 through 10. He was ready when he looked down and he saw that the people had crafted this false idol. And the, the text is very interesting there. The translation says they were basically partying. They were having like a great time. It almost wasn't a worship service towards an idol. It was kind of like a, we're celebrating. And so God looks down and he sees that here he is. He's preparing Moses to lead them. And while that's happening, they've just lost their minds. 
And they've even convinced Aaron. They dragged Aaron into it. They got him to lead the way, lead the effort. So God's ready to rain down wrath. And then what happens? In verse 13 of chapter 32, Moses reminds God of his covenant. He speaks his word back to him. If I can, for a second, step aside and bring home another point to the faith family this morning, whenever you are in your prayer time, whether that's individually or corporate, from time to time, it's good to recite God's word back to him. Because what it does is twofold. It shows God you're aware of his word, but it also does something within you. It almost prepares yourself to receive that word over and over again and to write yourself accordingly to that word. So here Moses reminds God of this covenant, this promise that he has made, and we see that God relents. For you and I, in our modern day context, we are a lot like Israel. In fact, you know, when people look at the Old Testament, they want to look at the judges and like the heroes and the people that did great things. And they want to take the good qualities and say, yeah, that's me. I, you know, I'm a lot like that, you know. And there's a lot of junior high guys that get in front of their mirrors at home and they think they're Samson, right? But they smell like the burnt sacrifice. That's who they really are. We do that often, but what I have learned in my life, especially with what God did in preparing me for church planting, is he really emphasized how much I am the embodiment of the rebellious people of Israel. He can do something very fantastic in my life and not moments later, I can forget all about it because I'm on to the next thing. I really feel like, and I, you know, I wasn't here for all of the lessons leading up, but I think one of the moments, one of the, or sorry, one of the things we can take away from the moment of Moses being up on the mountain before God is that we need to wait on the Lord because his timing is perfect. His provision is perfect. And just like Israel, you and I, we are fallen because of our sinful nature. And just like in spite of Israel breaking the covenant, you and I fall into sin regularly. We mess up, we make mistakes, but there are also times where we intentionally go against what God has called us to do. And just like Israel, there seems to be mercy and grace. In fact, it's not just seemingly so, it's overwhelmingly powerfully so. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is telling the Corinthians that everything is yes in Jesus. All of the promises that God has been, that has made, are yes in Jesus. Now, as I was preparing for this message this morning, 
I looked into how many promises are there in the Bible. And I couldn't really find a great consensus, but I'll tell you a lot of the guesstimation starts at around 3,000. I read one study of a guy in Pepperdine University where he said, I'm gonna read through and I'm gonna try to find all the promises and he estimates something like 7,400 something. And he says, of those 5,452, I believe, are God to people. It's God making a promise to people. It's not someone making a promise in scripture. It's God making a promise. Now get this. If that's the case, if that is true, 5,000 some odd promises God makes to people and the answer is always yes in Jesus. Now, I don't know about you. I've made a lot of promises and I've broken a lot of promises. I've had a lot of promises made and I've had a lot of promises broken. But to hear 5,000 unbroken promises in Jesus, if that doesn't overwhelmingly and powerfully communicate what God is trying to do in and through us in moving us to where he has prepared and called us to go, I don't know what'll get your attention this morning. A lot of the confidence moving forward for us is not in what our ability to create something and do and accomplish, but it's our ability to submit and follow after the one who already accomplished all of it. In Romans 1, we see the picture of fallen man, that we want to craft idols and images. And in Romans chapter 5, we see that the Lord has redeemed us, that even while we are dead in our sin, we are dead in our sin, God brings us to life through Jesus. Now, you know, I think about that often because you know, in the context of where Beth and I live and where we minister, there's an idea about being worthy and being able to do good things and, and perform great works and acts of service. When is the last time you saw a dead body accomplish any good work? To my knowledge, that's never happened right? But this image of us being made alive in Christ to perform what God has called us to do, I think is a powerful statement that even when we're dead in our sin and incapable, God brings us back to life. And through his work, through the work of Jesus, we are able then to go and do great things. I use this all the time when I'm engaging people in my community in that realm of thinking about doing good works. You know, the story of Lazarus is re really interesting to me because Jesus walks out into the tomb or by the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out, right? We see Lazarus walk forth. He obeys the command. But what happened 
before he could obey. He had to be raised to life. I think a right understanding for all of us here is that God accomplishes and fulfills his promises and he does so to provide life, to give us Jesus, and to center everything that we're doing on his effort. So if you look at me in the or look with me at the next text here, we'll see the point number two for being prepared for your mission field. God accomplishes the mission. God accomplishes the mission. Now look in verse two. He says, I will send an angel before you and I will drive them out, these people. The only thing not listed there is the termite. We've got all these ites in the scripture. Unfortunately, God did not drive out the termite and wipe him out. That would have been nice. But here we are. God sent an angel to make the way to the promised land. Now, at this moment in time, they're coming off this sin, this great fall from grace, if you will. And God could have abandoned them. We saw that in chapter 32, right? He was ready to just pour down wrath and he tells Moses, just like I started over with the flood, like I'm gonna start with you. Like I'm gonna get rid of these people, I'm gonna start with you. Here, they're coming off of that fall and here's a great, don't miss this, don't miss this. Even after that, God's gonna fight for them. God's gonna do the fighting for them. Again, up to this point, we could expect that if Israel rightly followed God, all they would have to do is show up because the angel of the Lord's gone before them. The battles have been fought, the victories have already been won, all they have to do is come and claim what God has prepared for them. That's where we're at right now in the scripture. If, if we didn't even finish the rest of the text, but if the story was instead for the rest of their days, Israel followed rightly after the Lord, we can expect from this text that all they had to do was follow right behind what God was doing. Now imagine that for your life. Imagine if God went before you and all you had to do was follow behind him. Now let me bring this home. There's a lot of discussion about this angel and who this angel was. Some scholars believe this is a pre-incarnate Christ going out before Israel. There are some that believe this is the angel of his presence, of God's presence. They make a distinction there. And then there are some that just believe this is a random generic angel. I don't have time this morning to get into that, but here's what I do want to do. I want to drive home the personal context for you and I God didn't send an angel before us. He sent his very son before us. And the son fought the greatest battle the world in history has ever seen. He fought death and it looked like death had won. But we know that three days later, 
Christ walked out victorious. If God can fight that battle and easily win it for you, there is nothing else that he could call you to in which he could not overcome. Some of you in this room may be battling with a secret sin or some sin issue. It has been overcome through Jesus. All you have to do is follow rightly behind God and trust him. Some of you have within you a calling that even now God has been stirring in your hearts, whether that's ministry abroad or here domestically. And I can tell you, no matter where that calling is leading to, he's already gone ahead and prepared. He keeps his promises and he accomplishes the mission. All you have to do is show up. Here we see what happens when they were to follow. God's reward is complete rest, abundance, and new life. He says, go up in verse 3 to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now listen, folks, I actually live in the land of milk and honey. I mean, first of all, Utah is recognized as the beehive state. Right, you see that all over the place. Pictures of the beehive, this idea of you know worker bees working together in this colony, and here it is. I live in this state where there's dairy farm after dairy farm after dairy farm. I can tell you that because I smell it every day I go to work. And then there's honey all over the place. We know what the idea of this land of flowing in milk and honey. But what the text is communicating to us is it's not just like a place where you can go to make a great birthday cake or something like that. This is a place that's going to be restful, abundant, and there's new life for Israel. They're walking into a land where all of the battles have already been fought and won and all they have to do is rest. There would be peace around them because God would win the battles for them. Again, remember, we're just stopping right here in this context. Assuming God conquers all of those people, which he said he was going to do, drive them out, there wouldn't be any warring they would have to go through. Rest. Perfect rest. Not only that abundance, the land was abundantly fertile and fruitful. You know, when the spies were sent out to look at the land, they came back and they're like, yeah, it's ready. They're, yeah, we're all, it's gonna, we're all gonna look like Wally after we've moved into Israel because there's just abundant food everywhere and we'll be taken care of, right? But then also new life, it's a new start. Think of their history coming out of slavery and now they'll have a place that is their own. So for Israel, wars avoided, land is fertile, and there's a home to dwell in. For us, there's no more pain and suffering. There's life to the fullest, and God, our dwelling, is with him. Now, I love 
Hebrew, the book of Hebrews. Love this book. I could read that day after day. And in Hebrews, we learn there at the end of chapter, or near the end of chapter 13, that there is a lasting city that's to come. The preacher, teacher says there, there's a city to come. And there, in our city, that's prepared by God at the end of all things, no more pain, no more suffering, life to the fullest, and our dwelling is with God. Until that time, wherever we live, we are as if we are in tents, waiting for what's to come. That's the story of Abraham and his faith, that he wandered as an alien in this land, not with a, a permanent dwelling, but he was waiting for that city that is to come. Now I want to conclude with two observations really quick here. Here are the two observations about the mission field. Stubborn people may find wrath instead of God's promises fulfilled. Look at 33b, if you will. Because you are an obstinate people, I might destroy you on your way. Stubborn people who are focused on themselves and their will and want their way may find wrath instead of God's promises fulfilled. You know, Matthew chapter 7 is a great warning to all of us. He tells us, Jesus himself, that there's going to be people that uh, one day call out, Lord, didn't I do these great things? Didn't I do these great works in your name? And he'll say, Depart from me, for I never knew you. Don't be a stubborn person that's focused on your will, your way, but be somebody that's focused on the Lord's will and way. The second observation is this. Broken and repentant people learn to look for God's presence and they find him. Look at verse 4. In our text, it says, When the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning, and none of them put on their ornaments. In verse 6, he says, So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from the Mount Horeb onward. And then look at verses 7 through 10. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about, whenever Moses went out to the tent, that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses." When all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all, uh, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. There at the end of our text, they remove these ornaments. These ornaments would have been collected from Egypt as they were leaving. These ornaments would have been used in ritual practices of worship for pagan gods. 
we see that they give the things that were collected from the Egyptians that were meant for the temple, the tabernacle that would be uh, erected later and built later. And instead, they form this golden calf, but there's leftover. There's all these ornaments left over. And now when they're, they're given the choice, here's what the Lord's gonna do. Either you get on board, you repent and follow him rightly, or you keep doing what you're gonna do, be in your stubborn, obstinate way, the people rightly respond. They cast all these ornaments off. And what do they do now? We saw in verses seven through 10, they become a people that are eager and looking for the presence of God. As soon as Moses would walk out to that tent of meeting, they would all get up. Moses is going out there. Not because Moses is a cool, good-looking dude and he's awesome. No, it's because they knew God was about to come meet with Moses. And there's an already, you can see, a longing that no longer God was being encamped with them, right amidst them, but instead he was going outside the camp. He was separated from them. And they longed to have that presence because they were rightly repentant at this moment in time. I want to tell you, a church that is established and a church plant that's just getting started, if you're going to be right with the Lord, it starts with rightly wanting the Lord, longing for his presence. And we see that here in Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus starts his great sermon on the mount, he begins it with what? Blessed are the broken. Blessed are the ones that mourn, the ones that are broken in their sin, the ones that are mourning, not the ones that are happy. We're not talking about a plan of happiness for everybody. It's, it's the one who rightly knows who they are before God and longs for the presence and the holiness of God. So if you're going to get to the mission field that God has prepared for you, remember God keeps his promises. He accomplishes the mission. His reward is rest, abundant, abundance, and new life. And folks, just remember, you want to be where God is. No matter what's going on in life, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, you want to be where he is. Because at the end of all things, that's exactly what we're waiting on, the dwelling with him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And Father, I pray that you would bless us according to your word. You have created us uniquely and you've called us for a purpose and a mission field that you have planned and established. We wanna be a people that rightly seeks you that is mindful of your holiness and your righteousness and ultimately submits 
to your calling and your lead in all things. We do this not to establish a kingdom of our own, but to proclaim the coming kingdom and the lasting city that we have dwelling with you. Amen.